0: This is an Equity Veats Media podcast. That's O-S-E-A, Malibu.com, code GLOW.
1: Take with the mind.
2: I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you
1: Welcome to another episode of Equity Mate. It's a podcast that follows our journey of investing. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name is Bryce and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce.
3: Looking forward to this episode,
1: we're going to unpack an
3: association that I'm not as familiar with as I should be. I think a lot of people probably may not even be aware of. But they've been out there fighting a the good fight, advocating on our behalf, and so I'm very
1: excited to uh, get stuck into this one. Yes, I did come across this association a number of years ago when I attended the Woolworths annual general meeting, and they played a pretty important role, which we'll get into in a little bit later. But it is our pleasure to welcome Stephen Mabb from the Australian Shareholders Association to the show. Stephen, welcome.
4: G'day, Bryce.
3: G'day, Ren. How are you going? Very well. Yeah, good. How are you? Looking forward to this chart.
4: Absolutely, yeah, and I appreciate you having us on. And I just wanted to start off by saying congrats on your 300 episode a couple of weeks ago. I've been listening in for a while now, and uh, that's quite a milestone. So uh, I'm sure all the listeners appreciate all the great info you've been sharing over the time.
1: Thank you. It has been quite a journey and we never would have thought we'd hit the big 300s, so it was an exciting moment, but yeah, I appreciate the support from everyone in the community. So Stephen is a director of the Australian Shareholders Association, which is a not-for-profit member-based organisation helping educate retail shareholders and also advocate for them with listed companies and regulators. Prior to becoming a director of the ASA, Stephen was a successful entrepreneur launching and scaling a footwear brand that you may have heard of called Vionic Group, which was then acquired in 2018. So we're going to unpack a lot of that and very excited to do so. But before we do, over to Ren for the classic overrated (laughs) underrated
3: so steven we like to start with a game where we throw out a few different themes or indexes that we may not otherwise get a chance to chat about in the conversation and just get your thoughts on whether they're overrated or underrated so we'll start at home with the asx 200 index overrated or underrated
4: yeah, well, I just sort of start by saying these these are my personal views on these topics, and not necessarily the uh, the ASH. I guess I'd also say I'm, I'm not a great forecaster. I tend to use history as my guide when I'm thinking about these kind of things. So starting with the ASX 200, I think what I'd say here is, if you're a long term investor, I think the ASX 200 is possibly underrated because uh, it's been a great place over you know many decades to, to build wealth and compound wealth. But if you're a more of an active investor, personally, I think it might be a bit overrated at the moment. I think there's some better opportunities internationally than just purely being focused on the ASX 200, which unfortunately most investors, it seems in Australia, have almost all of their equities tied up in, in the ASX. And, and I think that might be a bit of an overrating and that there's an opportunity to be more diversified using ETS. So that's my opinion on that one.
1: Hmm. Well, speaking of international, overrated or underrated, the NASDAQ 100?
4: Yeah, so again, I'd probably say you know, long term, great place to build wealth. It's probably underrated on the short term basis, though. It's it's very expensive. Looking at historical kind of ratios, there's a there's a great website that I often access that kind of compares 40 of the world's you know major most liquid markets. And at the moment, the U.S. indexes, the S and P and the Nasdaq, are are historically very expensive, and the most expensive in the world at the moment on a P.E. basis or a price to cash flow or a CAPE ratio, all those kind of traditional valuation metrics, it's, it's pretty expensive. So you know, I think about that cliche you often hear around buying low and selling high. And at the moment, it seems a bit the opposite with you know the NASDAQ and the S&P. They're, they're pretty expensive.
3: For people who heard you mention a great website, do you want to give the, the URL if they, if they want to look it up themselves?
4: Yeah, it's actually a German company called Stark Capital. So the website's just startcapital.de, and they have a section on there that's called Global Stock Market Valuations. And you can basically look at the 40 biggest markets in the world on a whole bunch of different valuation metrics at the end of every month. And it kind of just shows you, you know, which markets are cheap and which markets are expensive by, you know, historical and comparative standards. So I find that pretty helpful with my international ETF investing just to kind of compare you know, how expensive things or how cheap things are at different times in different markets.
3: Nice one. That's definitely one to look up. But going back to the game, there's been one sector that has captured most uh, investors' imaginations this year, and that's the buy now, pay later sector in Australia. So, overrated or underrated, that buy now, pay later sector?
4: yeah look I, I personally think this one's overrated to me it seems like there's some players that have done incredibly well and I think if you've owned these stocks you've probably had a had a great time of it but I also worry that you know they're really ripe for disruption from from some of the big payment players that uh, you know possibly have much bigger efficiencies and economies of scale than the, the startups in this space do so you know I think it's wonderful for consumers the buy now pay later space but it's a bit of a scary place for me personally to be investing in so I've stayed away
1: an asset class that is most frequently spoken about, I guess, here in Australia, is Australian residential property. So overrated, underrated Aussie property.
4: Oh, look, I think owning your own home as soon as you can is hugely underrated. It's uh, you know, for me, it's kind of a sleep well at night thing to be able to you know own your own piece of. Of property and uh, you know have somewhere to call home. In terms of an investment, I mean, again, just looking at the history and the, the returns over many decades, the whole property market and particularly the residential property market underperforms equity. So, I think if you can stand the volatility of being in the stock market, it's going to outperform property most years and and has done historically at least. So that's not a place that I invest anymore.
3: Speaking of volatility, to wrap up the game, we're going to ask you about probably the most volatile asset in. In the world these days, debatable. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, overrated or underrated, Bitcoin?
4: Yeah, again, I think what I'd say here is, as an idea or a technology or a method of payment, I can kind of you know see the future. I can I can really understand or you know, see a, a, a reason for you know even governments to be using crypto or blockchain to settle transactions and pay for things. But as an investment, it just doesn't seem to me like it produces anything. And and you're probably relying on, you know, someone else coming along and paying more for it in the future. And and that to me seems like a bit of a a speculative investment again. So I'm not investing in it, but I can certainly see the benefit or the potential of the technology and, and, you know, the options that it'll provide in the future.
3: I like that. And I think that's such an important distinction. Seth Klarman in his book wrote the question, are you investing or are you speculating? And if you're just buying something expecting someone to pay more in the future, the actual asset doesn't change in any way. Then you're speculating.
1: What about gold?
3: Well, you're speculating on the price. You, you're expecting someone to pay more for it in the future. But equities are this brilliant thing that changes you own them. So um, yeah, I do, I do like that answer.
4: Yeah, and I think the thing—the difference with gold, I think, is that it's kind of accepted by governments too. So if you are going to, you know, put money in something that's more of a store of wealth, at least with gold, it's you know, it's recognised and accepted and you know, utilised by governments all around the world. So it seems to be a little less risky than the the crypto investment does, personally. But you know, I could be wrong. Bitcoin could go to the moon. Who knows? It's hard to predict.
3: Yeah. Yes. Anyway, we could uh, we could really get sidetracked on that uh, that conversation. (laughs) So I'm going to pull us out of that. So Stephen, we're here to talk about the. Australian Shareholders Association, you know, what you do and some of the different services that you offer for retail investors. But before we do, we want to talk about you and unpack your background a little bit. And we like to start these conversations by asking about people's first investments. We generally find there's some good lessons or a good story that comes out of it. So to kick us off today, can you tell us the story of your first investment?
4: Yeah, well, this is this is a uh, you know probably a bad and a good story I guess in the, in the sense that I got a stock tip from uh, a, a good friend that was working in the company that that I was at at the time and I'd never invested in the stock market before and uh, apparently it was you know it was the next big winner it was some kind of hot stock I don't even remember what the name of the code of the stock was this is about 20 years ago now, but I put a couple of grand in it and within a few months the company had gone broke and uh, and had gone to zero so uh, that scared me off the stock market for a little while and I. Uh, you know, with my wife, then started to invest in some residential property, which went a lot better. But you know, that first experience, I guess, it probably taught me that uh, you can lose all your capital if you don't know what you're doing and you don't know anything about the company. And it's probably served me well, you know, now that I've re-entered the stock market to be much more disciplined and fact-based when I'm uh, putting money to work.
1: We spoke about discipline and fact-based approach. So I'm assuming you have developed some sort of an in- personal investing philosophy.
4: I have, yeah. I mean, one of the things through COVID was the really wild ride that that happened there. I kind of used that to get down an investing plan and a set of rules basically that, you know, guide me going forward. So I kind of have a core portfolio that's made up of international ETFs that, you know, that I'm hoping will just really do well long term and compound and I won't have to, to touch much. And then I also have two stock picking portfolios or themes under that. So one of them's is called QAV. It's kind of a quality at value process that this really successful Sydney investor has taught me about, and it's really about finding quality companies that are producing, you know, really good cash flow, but buying them, you know, at a reasonable price when the share price sentiment's positive. So so that's been working well for me. And then I also have a like a small and mid cap kind of multi bagger potential portfolio that's also been doing well and. Unlike, you know, maybe some of those smaller tech stocks I've, I've applied some rules to it around you know that those companies needing to be in decent financial health before I buy them and, and being cash flow positive and earnings positive before I buy them so not super super early stage but still well before the the big fires or the you know the ASX 200 indexes and stuff have captured them I guess so so that's kind of how I invest in that in the market and and I've also thought about you know well, where can I get an edge well where can any you know small or retail investor get an edge and I think You know, one thing that was staggering to me was just how many unprofitable companies there are listed on the ASX Mm -hmm. of the 2000 odd companies. There's only about five or 600 that make a profit. So it seems to me like if you eliminate all of those companies that don't generate any profits, you've, you've probably reduced a lot of risk and giving yourself a much better chance because you're fishing from a pond that's kind of got healthier fish in there, I guess doesn't mean those small or unprofitable companies can't go on to win one day, but but it feels to me like that's a good way to you know to eliminate some risk and, and find more likely winners. So I don't invest in anyone that's unprofitable. I also think you know being really nimble or quick, if you've got the time and effort to do it, being able to move quicker than the big guys. Gives you an advantage as well. So if you know an announcement comes out or there's news about the company, sometimes the big funds or the you know the big investment houses, it can take them days or weeks to kind of react to that when they have to have the committee meetings and all that kind of stuff. So as a small investor, I think you can move much quicker than that if you're staying on top of all the information coming through and then being willing to put in the effort. You know, if you've got the time try and learn as much and take in as much quality information as you can so that you've again got a bit of a, a quick nimble day-to-day information edge over the other average investor out there that's not willing or not able to do that work. So so they're kind of things that I focus on that I think hopefully can, can help me beat the market over time and, and so far I have been so I feel very lucky and happy with
3: how it's gone so far. Nice. Nice one. I like that. I like thinking about what your edge is and then really, really staying true to that. But anyway, Stephen, we are here to talk about investing, but we're going to take a little bit of a detour before we get there because as Bryce said in your introduction, you were a successful entrepreneur before becoming a director of the Australian Shareholders Association and we love hearing entrepreneurial stories. Really, a lot of the companies that we invest in start as great entrepreneurial stories. So we'd love to sort of unpack yours and see what lessons you learned from that. And I guess for a bit of context, you were a co-founder of a footwear business, a Vionic group that launched in 2007 and you scaled it before being acquired in 2018. Can you tell us what that journey was like, co-founding a company and growing it into a big enough beast that it got acquired?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel very very lucky to have had that experience. The the company had been around for quite a few years before I joined, but it was a small kind of medical product company, and then myself and a couple of other footwear guys joined the business and and basically started putting the technology into a range of shoes that looked really good. So they were, you know, they were good for you, they had a really Unique and, and positive health benefit, but they also, you know, they also looked good, which you know is a, a big driver of footwear sales. So yeah, we we took the brand over to the US in 2007 when it was tiny, and that was just before the GFC actually. So that was a bit of a scary time when the GFC hit, and we, you know, thought, well, what do we do? Do we come back to Australia and just uh, protect our capital, or do we stick it out and try and, you know, make it out of Unfortunately, we did decide to stick it out, and subsequently built the brand up into one of the top 20 footwear brands in America. Wow. So very fortunate, you know. We made a lot of good decisions along the way, and also had plenty of good luck. And then in 2018, we sold the brand to one of the big publicly listed football groups called Caleres out of St Louis. And I had lived over there for 12 years with my wife and kids, and we had a great time. But I, I took the opportunity when we sold to come back to Australia and uh, and basically become a full time investor. So that's what I've been doing ever since. And obviously the brand's still going. But I, I did learn a lot along the way. I think it's kind of helping me with my investing journey now as well
1: living the dream (laughs) <laughs>
4: yeah absolutely. It's been great so far. I mean it is I gotta say it's lonely though. That's one of the things that's different about working in a business, right? When you're an investor or a full-time investor, you're kind of on your own a lot. Mm. It's not the same as being in a team environment when're you're, when you're in a business, of course, so you've got to get used to that.
1: Mm. So you mentioned there that it had helped inform you and I guess help you understand some lessons that are informing your investing journey today. Are you able to elaborate on that?
4: Yeah look I think probably the couple of things in particular that really drove our success that I now look for in the companies that I'm thinking about investing in is you know firstly a focus on continually improving or progressing the product or the service so we used to measure the the customer ratings of every single shoe that we made and we we held ourselves accountable to try to improve that or the following season, or the following year, anytime that we'd be updating or replacing one of those particular products. So that gave us a really, I guess, you know, keen focus on constant product improvement to try and, you know, help our customers have a better experience season after season. And the other thing I'd say that's kind of tied to that is, is net promoter score. So we measured something that's called net promoter score, which is basically It's a sliding scale from minus 100 to positive 100, basically. So it's kind of like if if you surveyed 100 of your customers, how many people would tell their friends or family how bad you were or how good you are. And, And you can have 100 out of 100 telling everyone how bad you are right up to 100 out of 100 telling you. You're fantastic. So the idea, obviously, is to you know have the highest possible net promoter score you can. And it's a very good indicator of future sales and profit growth. So so we really honed in on that and tried to measure that and, and obviously improve in the areas where we weren't scoring well. And that's something I'm now looking for in the companies that you know that I invest in. It's like, all right, are they measuring customer satisfaction, are they measuring net promoter score? If they are, is it improving or declining? Because it's a pretty good indicator of, you know, whether their revenues and their earnings are going to grow in the future.
3: I like that idea of there's a, you know, there's all these metrics out there that can give us insight into customer satisfaction and all these things that can be hard to quantify. So, yeah, I think that's a really good metric. When you're looking at potential investments and you're trying to find their net promoter score, is there a particular website you go to or is there a particular resource where you can find that information?
4: Yeah, unfortunately, I haven't found one that kind of covers, you know, all of the the listed investments. I mean, there are some. So, you know, I mean, you can just Google search net promoter score and, and you often find scores for companies, but sometimes it can be outdated. So I, I often look in annual reports and just see whether they're measuring customer satisfaction in any way and, and if they are, you know, is it improving? Because obviously it can be bad, but if it's improving, then that's still a good, a good sign that, you know, they've turned it around or they've changed something and that you know, the future might look rosier than the past. Also, when you go into businesses where you're asked to complete a survey, that's normally a good indicator that you know that they're surveying their customers or trying to measure that so for example there's a listed business called Collins Foods here that that owns Lots of uh, KFC and you now Taco Bell restaurants in Australia. And at the bottom of all their receipts, they'll always, you know, invite you to go on and kind of rate your experience and give you some free fries or whatever it is for, for doing it. And that's because they're trying to measure the ongoing, you know, satisfaction of um, the customers in their restaurants. And uh, and that's something that their executives are uh, remunerated on. So, yeah, little things like that as a consumer, if you're stumbling across that, that can probably be a good indicator that the business is measuring it and that you might be able to find out how they're going.
3: I like that. And if there's any equity mates out there that are hearing that there's not one website that uh, profiles all net promoter scores for ASX-listed businesses, maybe that's an opportunity. Build (laughs) it and we'll promote it on the show. (laughs) There you
4: go. Absolutely. I'd love it.
3: So equity mates, we're going to take a quick break here to hear from our sponsors.
2: Planning for your next trip?
0: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss.
3: So, Stephen, moving on from your entrepreneurial experience in the US, you came back to Australia and you joined the Australian Shareholders Association and you're now a director of the Australian Shareholders Association. I think there'll be a lot of people listening that probably have never heard of the association before or won't be familiar with what it's trying to do, what its purpose is. I guess to start with, can you tell us a little bit about the association and, and what role it tries to play in Australia?
4: Yeah, absolutely. So it's been around for around 60 years and it's a not-for-profit organisation that primarily serves two functions. The first one's to try and help educate retail investors and the second function is really to advocate or stand up for retail investors with the companies and boards that you know they might invest in. So there's obviously lots of ways that they do that, but primarily yeah it's a it's a community and member based organization of just a whole bunch of other retail small investors and I've found personally it's been a great place to kind of talk to some other people that you know are doing what I'm doing and have a similar mindset to me maybe and and many of them have got dozens or decades of years of experience in the market as well so you know they can kind of help you learn some stuff that you might otherwise learn in a, in a painful way yourself, or avoid a mistake. And yeah, I've been a member now for a few years, and there's lots of local meetings all around the country, which uh, you know you can go along and uh, and hear various speakers and other members present and learn a lot from them. So I know we're going to unpack a lot of that. But you know, in a nutshell, that's what the ASA does.
1: So Stephen, what are some of the key focus areas for the ASA?
4: You know, as I mentioned, education's a big one. so mm-hmm. so we have lots of key presenters and subject experts, economists and managers that come and speak to us at our national conference, for example, or at local member meetings all around the country, or on webinars that that we run online. And once you remember that's all free to uh, you know free to to listen to or free to watch. And you can learn a lot and you can also pick and choose what you're interested in as well because it covers a whole lot of different subjects. Obviously, you know, equities and bonds, and international, ethical, all kinds of you know, various themes. Over the course of a year, we'll cover you know, lots and lots of different topics that you know, different people might be interested in. There, there's a great member magazine that comes out every month that has contributions from members, but also you know, some really interesting information from, again, subject matter experts and fund managers, et cetera. We've got a great forum on the website where you can go on and talk to other other investors or other members. So, uh, so yeah, a few different ways that we try and help educate investors. And, and, you know, none of that's in competition to what Equity March does, of course. It's just, you know, complimentary. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, you guys do a lot of different stuff to what we do, so there's a, there's a place of both. And, and I listen to – obviously, I listen to lots of podcasts that, uh, that aren't necessarily tied to the ASA because there is a lot of great information out there. And then the second thing is the advocacy. So I think this is something very unique that, that no one else is really doing, particularly for retail investors. And so what we have is a team of monitors, we call them, that are all volunteers, and they basically meet with most of the ASX 200 companies at least once, sometimes twice a year. And and typically, they'll go in and they'll talk to the board, they'll talk to the chair, about, you know, how the company's going and the various resolutions or issues that the company's proposing to, you know, vote on at the AGM, for example. So they'll go in and talk to the board about those issues. And then they'll put together voting intentions for the AGM that really represent retail shareholders for for the, you know, for the most part in the right way. So if you're like me, you probably, you know, get these letters in the mail from your companies and they ask you for your pensions. And a lot of people I think don't probably bother with them and throw them in the bin or don't do anything with it. But with your ASA membership, you can basically assign your votes to the ASA and they will go along and vote on your behalf at the meeting so that your voice is heard without you having to do all the work of you know, reading through an annual report and trying to figure it out yourself. So I think that's a great benefit for the retail investing community that, uh, that there's someone in there going along to the vast majority of the a- AGMs of that ASX 200 group Representing you, trying to stand up for you, and making sure your voice is heard with the board, and not just the large institutional investors that get a lot of access to the board you know, through, throughout the year.
3: I think that's a really important role that the ASA plays, advocating for retail investors' interests. And I'd love to get out of the the sort of the theoretical and into the practical, and, and talk about some examples of you know, I guess notable successes or meaningful interactions that the ASA has had with different ASX-listed companies. Bryce mentioned at the top of the show that he saw the ASA at a Woolies AGM, so I'm actually going to direct this to him to begin with. What was your experience with the ASA at the Woolies AGM?
1: It wasn't a bad experience. I'd just never come across the ASA before and was unaware of what they were doing. But um, it was clear Brad Banducci and Woolworth knew who the ASA were because they got up and asked a number of questions on behalf of, I guess, the shareholders that they represent. And I guess advocated for what their group represents and were trying to achieve in terms of asking Brad Branducci a bunch of questions. So it was interesting. I'd I'd never seen it before rather than old Joe Bloggs standing up there having a whinge about 10,000 things that you generally see at an annual general meeting. It was, I guess, nice to see some more... I guess directive questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
4: Fair enough. And that's a really important point, Bryce. The ASA is not like an activist organization. They're not going along and trying to hijack an AGM and uh, you know make a bunch of Which does uh, happen. controversial yeah. comments <laughs> at all. Yeah, exactly. I mean that's not what we're about. It's really about you know trying to find that balance between you know what does the company need to do and what do they need to do to keep their institutional shareholders happy as well versus what's fair and reasonable for their, their retail shareholders and trying to find that balance between the two to your point i think there are some really great specific examples of you know what asa has been able to achieve over the years part of the reason that i think we've had these successes is most of the time we're somewhere between the 10th and 20th largest shareholder on the register when you combine all the asa votes so, the companies really do want to listen to us because it is a decent chunk of votes that we're going to be voting most of the time. And some examples are, if you've ever read an annual report, there's a section called the remuneration report that's normally really long and, and often complicated and difficult to understand. And so, we look at that and, and basically say, can the average investor read this report and figure out what the, the board and the executives are being paid and, and you know how are they being paid and is what they're being paid fair based on the results that they've delivered. So when that's not the case, we'll obviously work with the company, encourage the company to try and improve and simplify the way they're communicating that info so that, again, the average investor can read the report. And over the years, that's got a lot better. It's you know significantly better now than it was, say, 10, 15 years ago in terms of being able to try and understand how companies are remunerating Uh, their people. I think another big issue has been women on board. So the ASA has taken a really strong position on on this over the years to try and have at least 30% women or men represented on a listed board. And I think we're now at the point with almost all of the ASX 200 companies now have at least 30% women on the board. Now, that wasn't some, again, activist effort, it was really that, you know, it is best practice to have a a real range of views and diversity on a board. The the whole purpose of the board really is for governance and oversight of the company. So you should have a reasonable representation of different ideas and different views. And the idea of just an all-male dominated board isn't really realistic uh, or, you know, likely to achieve that, we think. So we've lobbied really hard over the years. and, And for example, would not vote for another male director to be elected if there wasn't at least 30% women on that board normally. So I think over time, the companies have kind of got that message. And it's not just us, but we've been you know, really forward, I think, over the years in, in trying to make that change. And, and another one is probably capital raising. So I'm sure some of the, the listeners have received offers to you know, invest more money in the company because they're doing a capital raising and you know, they're saying, hey, give us some more money. We want to do X, Y, and Z, which, which is fine. But when they do a capital raising, we want to make sure that they're treating their retail shareholders fairly or evenly with the offer that they're giving to the institutional shareholders. So to give you an example there, I mean, earlier in the year, Cochlear which is a great company, did a capital raising, and they came out and announced that they were going to raise, I think it was about $800 million, of which only $50 million was was going to be offered to their retail shareholders, which was a much, much smaller percentage than retail shareholders represented of the, the total shareholding. So we uh, obviously advocated really strongly that that wasn't fair and that they should increase the size of the you know the retail capital raising, and they lifted it to over $200 million, which was great. And while it still got scaled back, so you know if you if you applied for that when you didn't get your full allocation. It was done evenly between the institutional and the retail components. So you know both both institutional and retail shareholders got the same amount proportionally of, of what they applied for. So uh, so there's some I think some good practical examples of how the ASA is going to go in there and try and represent you and stand up for you as a retail shareholder and and make a positive difference. Doesn't mean you know every company listens to us on everything all of the time. But, you know, over time, we've made, I think, you know, some really good improvements or made made some great progress and, you know, have helped retail shareholders get a, a fair and better deal from some of their companies.
3: Now, Stephen, I'm going to ask you maybe a slightly controversial question. I'm sure there's a percentage of your membership base that would probably advocate for potentially more, I guess, causing a ruckus at AGMs or something or more forceful advocacy on some other issues, especially the one that comes to mind is around climate these days? And, you know, like climate disclosures or, you know, divesting from certain parts of businesses. Is that something that the ASA are looking at or something that they're talking about internally, you know, sort of advocating on issues outside of remuneration, board makeup and stuff like that?
4: Yeah, look, it's a really good question. And and at the moment, the, the e, e part of ESG is something that we're wrestling with, trying to come up with a position that's is going to represent the majority of our members, and uh, and it's going to be really difficult to keep everybody happy because there are so many polarized views on the, you know, the ethical and the environmental, you know, part of the investing world at the moment. I think on the the S and the G, you know, like we've been great at, I think, helping improve governance or you know, turning a spotlight on governance of the companies over the years. So that's something I think we've already got really good positions on, and are, you know have done a good job over the years, but. The ethical and the environmental part of it, as I say, that's something we're working on at the moment. And the position that we end up taking going forward will basically come about from consulting with our members and our policy committee, you know, working through that and trying to take a sensible, balanced position on those issues, knowing that you can't really have a super-specific set of rules that you can apply to every different kind of company. You've got to come up with something that, you know, that applies to the majority of the companies that are that are listed. So yeah, not finalized yet in that area, but we're working on it and hopefully we'll have something soon to, to announce after we've been, you know, consulting and finalising that with all of the members.
1: So Stephen, you've spoken about areas of focus of the ASA and I guess what you're trying to achieve and and some of the areas that you advocate for. Are you able to give us maybe a a notable success story where you've been able to convince the company to act in a way that is uh, reflective of how your membership are thinking?
4: Yeah, look, I, I can give you some personal examples because there's a few companies that, that I monitor personally that are based up in Brisbane, where I am. You know, so I've had some first-hand experience with with Jumbo Interactive, for example. I'm sure some of the some of the folks out there will know Jumbo, and uh, you know they've had a terrific five-year run of you know growing the business and growing shareholder returns growing from a, you know, a very small company 5 years ago into an ASX 300 company now. So, we engage with them for the first time this year and they've appointed a, a new chair a few months ago. So, this was a great opportunity to kind of sit down with her and the company for the first time and just, you know, go through a lot of those issues we just talked about that are important to retail shareholders and she was incredibly receptive. She really, you know, leaned in, I thought, and and was, you know, very keen to particularly improve the clarity of the communication in next year's annual report and AGM. So it wasn't bad this year or anything, but there were just some areas where we thought they could make things clearer and easier to understand for investors when they were, you know, reading how they were remunerating or incentivizing their team, how they were laying things out in the annual report. And I'm very confident that next year, you know, we'll we'll see those improvements and it'll be even easier easier for, for the shareholders at Jumbo to kind of figure out what's going on and determine whether they stay in or stay out of the company, for example. So yeah, that's a good personal experience just from you know, the last couple of months that, nice. that I could share.
3: Speaking of your personal experience, so as, as well as being a director for the ASA, you are also a company monitor. you monitoring four companies this year. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe they're Collins Foods, EML Payments, Jumbo Interactive and Technology One. So I guess sort of two questions there. First one, the role of the company monitor. Can you tell us a little bit about what you do in that role? And then specifically for those four companies, were they randomly chosen or was there something specific about those four companies that led you to monitor them?
4: I was a little bit biased in that those were all four companies that I either held or I was interested in So, um, and we weren't covering them. So, you know, I was like, well, these are all, you know, SX 200, 300 companies that we're not yet covering. This is a great opportunity, you know, for me to learn a bit more about them, but also be able to provide information to members around the companies. And the other thing I should mention too is you don't have to be a member to uh, you know, have someone vote for you at the AGMs either. So even though I was predominantly doing this for ASA members, I mean, other people can allocate their proxies to ASA too if you want us to vote for you on your behalf with these kind of companies. And yeah, basically what happens is you know the annual report, the interim report, they come out, you, you, know, you read through all of those, you, you take in all the information that you can, and then you look at what the companies are proposing, you know, the resolutions are at the AGMs and what they're proposing to, to vote on. And, and the ASA has then got some really, you know, clear, sensible guidelines around all the different things that companies will normally be putting to shareholders at AGMs that we then draft up our voting intentions. And that's something that I haven't seen or I don't know that anyone else does, including the other big proxy advisors. They don't really give you a good explanation of why they're going to vote a certain way. Whereas with the ASA... Our monitor will, you know, put together a several page document on, you know, why we're going to vote a certain way on each of the resolutions and and explain it to you in easy to understand language. So you can read through that then and say, all right, well, that makes sense or it doesn't. And, and if you don't like the way that we were going to vote on a particular issue, you can take back your proxy at any time too. So it's not like, you know, once you've given us your proxy, it's there forever. If, you, if you've if got a different opinion, you can vote your own way. But if you're not going to do anything with it or you're happy with how we're voting, then you just leave your proxy there and, and the monitor will then go to the AGM and, and vote on your behalf. So, yeah, that's really how the the general process works. I think what you know what's also really valuable is that we will go in and sit down with the, the board normally before the AGM and talk through it so that we can get their point of view or, you know, clarify anything that's not super clear before we put together the voting intention. So that gives the company a chance to explain things or to, you know, clarify things. And and sometimes we, we agree to disagree. So we try not to ambush the company. We, you know, we explain to them why we're going to vote a certain way and share that with them. If we agree to disagree, that's okay as well.
3: It's an interesting one. You you mentioned there that the four companies you selected weren't being monitored. So I guess just how many companies do the ASA monitor every year?
4: It's normally somewhere around 200, and to be honest, we'd love to monitor every company on the ASX, but it's a volunteer group and there's just not enough people unfortunately to, to cover every company. So we prioritize generally the ASX 200 and then any other you know large, slightly controversial companies potentially that are outside of that. But you know if we had more monitors, we would cover even more companies. So you know like any volunteer organization, it just comes down to you know how many people there are to, to cover all the work.
3: So does that mean any equity mates listening who are interested in becoming company monitors, is it just a matter of putting their hands up and then they can, I assume, maybe get a bit trained up, make sure that they're suitable to speak to management, but then they can go and speak to some of these company boards and monitor some of these companies?
4: Exactly. Yeah. So, so first step would be obviously to become a member, and then yeah, we have a, a policy and advocacy manager that's based in our Sydney head office, and she's very knowledgeable and and you know a real expert in this area. So her and the, and the state chairs would normally do some training with you, and make sure that you know you really understand all the guidelines and and uh, you know. The, dotting the i's and crossing the t's of how you would put a voting intention together and how you you know interpret the annual report and there's always experienced monitors to help you with that when you're getting started as well so you don't just kind of get thrown to the woods and, and have to do it all yourself there'll be someone there by your side when you're first starting out to help you through the process but it is a great way to get first hand access to you know to some big and interesting companies that the normal shareholder just normally wouldn't be able to get in front of so if it is something that you're interested in absolutely we're always looking for more you know, more volunteers and it's a great way to get, you know, get under the hood and see more about the company and, and I've I've learned a tremendous amount just, you know, going through that process that I can now apply to every company I'm interested in, not just the ones that I personally monitor.
3: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a interesting opportunity. We often talk on equity mates, I guess the disparity for retail investors in terms of access to management. You know, we speak to so many fund managers and they always talk about how management and people and culture is such an important part of good long-term investments and then it's but then for retail investors it's how do you give them that access so i think yeah. the more transparency that you can give to retail investors the better
1: Maybe we start the EquiMates chapter of ASA. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be great. Hold on. (laughs) We'll take this offline. (laughs) That's right. Great idea, mate.
4: Um, (laughs) I can can tell you that, you know, the four companies I monitored are very different cultures from one to the next, and I didn't necessarily have that perception before I, you know, dug in and met with the boards. So as much as I held them all or I was interested in them all, I've got a much deeper understanding now of, you know, really the culture and the philosophy of the management teams and the boards now. And, and it isn't always good. You know, sometimes there's some stuff going on culturally or in terms of how they're applying their remuneration, for example, that may not be in your best interest. And it, it's good to have that information or to know that so that you're making a more informed judgment on whether this is a company that you do or don't want to be invested in. So, yeah, as, as I said, I've learned a lot. Personally, and and now you know I'm kind of reading those reports of the other companies that I don't personally monitor, to see what you know what the monitors have got to say from their engagements with the
3: boards. Yeah, it's a good one. If any ASA members see Bryce's application to be a company monitor, I would cast that one aside. Though I I don't I wouldn't trust him. You know, asking questions <laughs> of management.
4: <laughs> oh, we've got some pretty tight guidelines, so we didn't want to go too far off the rails.
3: Equity mates, we're going to pause here to hear from our sponsors again. So Stephen, I think one area where the ASA does some really good work is around, you know, we've spoken about the the proxy votes and you know Bryce talked about his personal experience seeing the ASA ask questions of management at an AGM. And I think an AGM in general is probably a pretty underappreciated event for a lot of investors. It's sort of, you know, something that you get a bit of paperwork for that you you know ignore or you you read and then you don't really do much with. I would hazard a guess that a lot of retail investors don't attend AGMs, especially when they're on a bloody eleven o'clock on a work day. So they're difficult to access. How should retail investors think about AGMs and think about I guess the power of their vote at these AGMs?
4: Yeah, well, I think you know the first thing to I think remember is you know as as shareholders, you really own the company. So if if you don't vote, you're not really, you know, sharing your voice with the board and the management team about how you feel about what they're proposing to do with your company at the end of the day. So yeah, if you don't have the time or you're not inclined to read through reports and put together your own votes, I mean that's fine. We totally understand. Lots of people don't want to do that. the next best option is to really assign your votes to someone that, you know, the vast majority of the time is probably going to represent you well and the way that you would feel or the way that you'd want to vote on these issues. So I would say, you know, don't waste your proxy. If nothing else, allocate it to someone like ASA. And, you know, if you do decide to get more active down the track and then you want to dig into the actual issues in more detail and vote yourself, that's great too. I mean, you know, we also encourage that, but don't let your vote go to waste. And it's particularly relevant to things like remuneration. So there's a rule in Australia basically where the company has to put their remuneration report to shareholders at every AGM and and they need to vote on it. And And while it's not a binding resolution in, in the sense that it doesn't you know, mean that the company has to do something based on the, the vote, what does happen is you can have what's called a strike. So basically if if let's say 25% of the shareholders or more vote against the remuneration report, that's called a first strike, and, and that would happen where the company was either really over remunerating their people versus the results they're delivering, or they're you know potentially paying out big bonuses that you know that weren't achieved or weren't deserved, and at least 25% of the shareholders would then vote against that. If you get a second strike, so that's two strikes in two consecutive years, that can actually lead to a spill of the board. So. It's a very serious issue and obviously most boards do not want that to happen. So, if you're really unhappy with the way that, you know, the management team or the company is remunerating people, you do have a lot of power with, you know, as I said, only up to 25% or more of the shareholders having to vote against the remuneration report, which will likely lead to some, you know, some significant change in the following years so that the company avoids subsequent strikes. So that's that's I think a good example practically of how your voice can be heard and And make a difference. And again, we're not obviously wanting to go in there and vote against everyone's remuneration report all the time. We want our companies to do well and we understand that they, you know, they need to remunerate their people well and as long as they're, you know, doing it fairly and getting better results for their shareholders over time, we're not going to be going in and voting against every remuneration report. But when they're doing the wrong thing or they're doing something that's really unfair that's when you have the power to really make a change.
1: So Stephen, before we move to our final three questions to wrap up the interview, for those that are listening and keen to get involved, how does someone become a member of the ASA or assign their proxy votes to the ASA?
4: Yeah, so look, really simple. You can just go to australianshareholders.com.au and join up. Uh, There's a whole bunch of really good free information on the website that you can dig through first. And I think it's only about one hundred and thirty bucks a year to be a member, and for that you get access to you know all of the information you can come along to the local meetings, you can you know watch the webinars, all those kinds of different ways that you know we help share information and, and help educate. And in terms of the proxy part of it, if you're not a member, you can just write Australian Shareholders Association in as your proxy when you get the forms or when you get your email. If you are a member, there's some forms that you can do that on a permanent basis as well. If that's something that you, you know, you want to do. So yeah, pretty easy way to get involved and, uh, to allocate your proxies.
3: If you want to be a member, it's the hundred and thirty. If you want to allocate your proxies, you don't have to pay anything though. That's correct.
4: That's right. You don't have to be a member to allocate your proxies. So if you just want to allocate your proxies to the ASA because you think they're going to vote, you know, as I said, for the vast majority of the time, the way that you would vote yourself if you dug into it, you can just write Australian Shareholders Association in as your proxy. If you're doing a paper form or if you get the email, you just you know. Obviously, type it in and send it back to the registry that that's who you want your proxies to be allocated to instead of the chair of the meeting. And normally, the chair of the meeting is always going to vote in favour of you know every resolution that they put to the meeting. So if you don't want that to happen, then you know you write in Australian Shareholders Association as the person that you or the group that you're nominating as your proxy.
3: It's a really interesting and it's a really valuable thing that the Shareholders Association does. You know, there's a lobby group out there looking after the interests of retail shareholders. So I'm, I'm glad we've got you on, Stephen, and we've sort of explored this and had this conversation.
4: Absolutely. And I really appreciate it. And as I said, there's lots of info on the website. And I'm sure there's, you know, there's plenty of people that are more than happy to chat through any of this with you too if you'd like to find out more.
3: Nice one. As Bryce mentioned there, we do like to end these interviews with the same final three questions. So we'll get stuck into those. The first of which is, do you have any books that you consider must read? And these can be investing or otherwise.
4: Yeah, I do. I've got a few actually that have really left a, a mark on me in recent years. So the the first one's the Little Book of Behavioural Investing by James Montier. And yeah, that was a really good read in terms of trying to get control of the emotions and the biases and all that kind of stuff that you know that all of us have. And as as the name suggests, it's a little book, so it's a pretty quick, easy read. But you know, I found that really helpful. In terms of trying to find really big compounding stocks that can grow into, you know, really big investments over time. There's a great book I read called 100 Dagger by Chris Mayer, which, you know, detailed how you could, you know, go about trying to identify those companies. And it's not just about finding the next afterpay. There's lots of other ways that he outlines in the book that you can do that. So that was a great book. Enough by Jack Bogle, who, you know, was the founder of Vanguard. It's a really good read on, you know, both investing and also just managing personal finances in your life. So yeah, enough by Jack Bogle. And then I read a great book a few months ago called When All Is Said and Done by Neil Danaher. I know you guys are AFL fans. If you don't know Neil Danaher, he was a a great player for Essendon and then a a coach at at Melbourne. And he's, uh, you know, he's currently going through a pretty, tough time health wise but this book is just an awesome read about you know growing up in Australia and you know playing footy and and all the things that he's learned in life that I found really inspirational so there are a few things that yeah I've, I've enjoyed reading and hopefully that people do too
3: nice one yeah a hundred baggers has sat on my shelf for a little while and I've never got around to opening it so I'm gonna reprioritize that one after this conversation yeah,
4: it's interesting. It's not what you'd expect. It's not just about trying to find really you know specky ideas. There's a good process in there, I thought. For, you know how you and, and you know again, he doesn't suggest that you know, every stock you pick is going to be a hundred bagger, but it's just some interesting ways on how you can you know potentially identify those kind of stocks.
3: Yeah, yeah, nice one. So the second question that we like to ask is, what's your go-to source for investing and in financial information?
4: Yeah, well, of course, Equity Mates. I mean, I listen to that every every week. And in all seriousness, you guys have so many great guests on. I mean, I've learned a lot from listening to you know to your interviews, and particularly the way that you guys ask the questions and you know try and simplify that a lot of the time for people. It's it's fantastic. So yeah, in all seriousness, Equity Mates is a great resource. I also have made a rule for myself that I'm really only going to follow people or or companies that have published market beating records, because there is so much information out there and so many you know newsletters and experts. That for the most part talk a good game, but many of them don't have a published or a market beating record. And I've just decided over time that, you know, I, I, I don't want to listen to or I don't have the time to listen to the folks that don't have market beating records. And I'm going to hone in on those that do. So I know, for example, you, you know, you guys had Rudy. Philip Ex on a few weeks ago and you know, I really enjoyed the interview. But looking at Rudy's performance over the years, the portfolio kind of just tracks the market. So I listen to Rudy, but I'm not putting as much weight into, you know, some of his picks. As I am some of the other services that I follow that uh, you know that have market beating records. So I've had a lot of success with Motley Fool. You know, the Motley Fool in Australia has some you know some really good stock pickers I think, and they publish their record. And I've done well with a lot of their pick. QAV I mentioned, which is a you know a really good system for finding quality stocks at a value price. And then I also use Stock Doctor, which you know is expensive, but it's a really great tool I find to kind of analyse stocks and dig into the, the fundamentals and charts. So there my my kind of go-to sources because all of them have you know, long-term market-beating records and, uh, and a great history of, you know, kind of beating the market. And to me, that seems like it's it's worth following.
3: Some good recommendations there. And then the final question: If you think back to you know your younger days, just starting out investing, taking that hot tip from a mate and losing all your money, what advice would you have for your younger self?
4: Yeah, look, I think that the number one thing I think I've learned over the last, you know, five or ten years is just the power of compounding and that, you know, getting started earlier in smart investments instead of someone's whisper stock makes a lot of difference, you know, towards the end of your investing career, obviously. So yeah, getting started earlier and, and you know, investing in index funds or ETFs instead of residential property was probably something I think I would have told my younger self and done differently. You know, and I, you know, I obviously learned from those experiences, but still I, I think I'd be doing even better today if I had a, got started in some, you know, some broad indexes earlier than than I otherwise did. So I am trying to share that with you know with my kids and the younger folks that I know now that if they've got a, a few dollars in savings, that you know it's a great place to invest in these really great low-cost ETFs that we have available to us now.
1: Nice, Stephen. Well, it has been a refreshing interview away from, I guess, the ins and outs of fund managers to learn about another part of the investing journey that is, I guess, equally as important and uh, the role that the ASA are playing. So thank you very much for your time today. It's been a great interview and I'm sure many of our listeners and and members of the community have have learned something new. So we will discuss the Equity Mates chapter uh, (laughs) offline. uh, (laughs) But uh, yeah, no, very much appreciate your time. Thanks for coming on.
4: Yeah, no, I just want to say thanks very much to to you guys too for, you know, the opportunity to speak today, but also all of the great information and, uh, and, you know, ways that you're communicating and sharing your knowledge and and the knowledge of your guests with, uh, with all the retail and equity mates out there. It's been, you know, enjoyable for me to be listening to, and I really, I'm sure lots of people out there appreciate it. So, thanks for all you're doing.
0: Thanks for listening to Equity Mates Investing Podcast, a production of Equity Mates Media. Please remember that everything you hear in Equity Mates Investing Podcast is general advice only. The content has been prepared without knowing your personal objectives, specific financial circumstances, or goals. The host of EquityMates Investing Podcast may maintain positions in the companies discussed. Before considering any investment, please read the product disclosure statement and consider speaking to a licensed financial professional.